Ladies and gentlemen, we got a somber one for you today. We want to talk about suicide. It's a controversial topic, but one that's really important and affects all of us. And we are in the business of giving public service announcements. So, you know, why not serve the public by, you know, talking about how we can prevent suicide, right? And how we can, you know, all band together collectively and use our mindfulness, our gratitude, and our resilient focus to build a you know, place of wellness, uh, build a community of wellness that protects our, our brothers and sisters from the depths of, of suicide. Yeah, and like Arben mentioned, suicides touch the athletic community as well. We'll talk a little bit about Junior Seau, and we'll talk about other athletes that have struggled with suicidal thoughts, like mm-hmm. Michael Phelps and Ronda Rousey. And then at the end, we, we do as we always do. We introduce another topic, physician-assisted suicide mm-hmm. or euthanasia. So thanks for tuning in. It's a heavy one, but it's a good one. another one how's everyone doing and another one hey what's good y'all what's going Actually, on you, that's my advil bottle sorry guys Ad- advil yeah ibuprofen you in pain, you in pain? what's going on uh, i was doing these back squats the other day and uh oh, the end please, of- <laughs> man, come on now no pain no gain you know oh. right hey so listen um today we're gonna change the tone a little bit I think we normally like to kind of start off with enthusiasm, just sort of, uh, you know, want to start off on a high note, right? Positive attitude. Always. Momentum, right? Get that momentum going. But today we, you know, I mean, here we are, what, 26 episodes in, and um, we haven't really, I feel, done justice to a really, really, really important topic that, that really touches us all, mm-hmm. right? You know, we're sports guys. You know, we're, we're all about athletes um, and performance in general. But Performance. Yes, before men's and women's. Um, but, like, honestly, man, this topic really affects everybody worldwide. And we're talking about the topic of suicide. Okay? Yeah. Tough word. Right? Yeah, definitely. It was even almost hard to get out. Right? We wanted to give uh, this topic its own episode. We've talked about it a little bit before in uh, Mental Health for Young Athletes episode, a little bit in the Adjustment Disorder episode. It's definitely an often talked about and discussed topic. Some In some circles, it's a taboo topic. It's a very emotional-laden topic. Oh, yeah. And yeah. like you said before, it affects almost each and every one of us. You guys out there, everyone probably knows someone who's who's passed away from suicide. I've actually had two family members pass away from suicide. So Wow, man, I didn't know that. Yeah, so there's... I mean, for all of us who are clinicians, mental health providers, this is a tough subject because we yeah. see it every day. We deal with it every day. And then obviously mental illness overall is everyone has to deal with that at some point or know someone who's going through mental illness. And then suicide, death, the, the finality of that, it's, it's huge. And it, it causes a lot of suffering and not the individual oftentimes who commits suicide. And 
we'll talk, I guess we never really know the reasons why, but oftentimes it's to end suffering. Mm -hmm. But in turn, a lot of the people who knew that person, that individual, there's a lot of suffering there. We could probably do our own podcast on how to adjust with having a loved one commit suicide. I feel like that's its own topic in itself. But briefly, it is a lot of suffering. And sometimes there's like this cognitive dissonance where you're upset and you're angry at that individual for killing themselves. Some people think it's a selfish decision, but you also miss the person dearly and you wish that they could have lived a full, healthy life. So you hold these two kind of almost contradicting ideas in your head. And a lot of times that makes the grieving process even more difficult for certain individuals. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we talked about you know bereavement in the uh, the Kobe podcast. Yeah, I mean, grief is, you know, it, it's a life-changing experience when you have to go through that. You know, I I think, you know, it, they say it leaves a hole in your heart or, you know, a piece of your soul, yeah. you know, is taken. And, and I feel like, yeah, you're just not never really the same. So, man, did you know that suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States? Wow. You know, I, I mean, it's... uh. It's big. It really affects all of us. And uh, it's something that we, you know, we don't like to talk about. Yeah. 48,000 people in 2018 killed themselves in the United States. And they estimate almost 1 million worldwide. And those are large numbers. That's 132 individuals per day in the United States kill themselves. You know, the, the thing about it, I think that is most powerful when you think about 10th leading cause of death is that it is, it's very much preventable. You know, it's not like, like cancer, for example, right? Which some people just acquire because of genetic inheritance, right? It's not like something that happened as a result of, you know, environmental exposure, or, you know, whatever. Can I give you um, another jarring stat? What's that? or ranking, it's actually the second leading cause of death in individuals up to the age of 35 in the United States. Wow. Second behind accidents. Right. It's something that uh, I think is not just an, an issue for the individual. It's an issue for the family. It's an issue for the community. It's an issue for the schools, how we govern, you know, our politics, you know, our healthcare systems, you know, our entire infrastructure uh, should really rally around this. And I think we're doing a better job nowadays of, you know, just uh, at least, you know, having some sort of public health messaging. You know, there's the suicide hotline, yeah. for example. You know, and there's, you know, Suicide Awareness Month and, you know, different things. But I think what we could use is like a meaningful conversation, not just about just be aware of it. Right. Um, not just like the rah-rah stuff, but like how it, how it evolves, you know, how it develops, what it looks like, the faces of it. Right. Because one of the things I hope our listeners take away from this conversation is that suicide is not just an end state. It is, in fact, you know, like many things we've talked about on this podcast, a spectrum. There's this range to it. And, you know, certainly the end state is death. But 
in most cases, it, it takes many different series of events, you know, a sequence, cascade, if you will, of events that lead to, right? It's sort of like a final common pathway. Therefore, if you understand what those stages are, you know what to look for, and you can be a part of saving a life. Yeah, so there are some, a death. there are some identifiable risk factors that you can look out for that yeah. increase the risk of someone committing suicide. But at the end of the day, it is something that is ex- extremely variable from one person to the next. So it's never going to look the same for one individual as it does for the, the next. Yeah, yeah. Keeps you on your toes. So that, what you, I think suicide. what you're leading to is what we refer to in the medical community as suicidal ideation. Yeah, I mean, that's where it starts, right? You know, it starts with just, you know, having those kind of pervasive thoughts of wanting to die. And in, to me, it just kind of fuels and reinforces that that suffering, that yeah. that kind of sense of suffering and pain. Um, and it becomes a, a negative well, cycle. I think it's important that we explain to our audience what suicidal ideation is. What are the terms that we're working with in the medical community? The point of this is when we hear someone is suicidal or has suicidal ideation or is having thoughts about death or wanting to kill themselves, we need to get details. We want to ask as many questions as possible to determine the severity because there's different types of suicidal ideation. There's passive suicidal thoughts, meaning maybe the individual has wishes of wanting to be dead, thoughts of themselves dead. That would be termed passive which is less severe than active suicidal ideation, which would mean that I'm having suicidal thoughts about killing myself. I have a plan to kill myself. I've thought about a method to kill myself, or I have intent to kill myself. Those are active suicidal ideations. And then you have another thing where some people just think about death, or they would think about themselves dying, but not necessarily have, it's ego dystonic. They don't want to die, but sometimes they have thoughts about being dead. And that's something you also have to differentiate. The most important thing for us as clinicians and for, I guess, any individual who someone comes to them and asks them or tells them, confides in them that they're having these thoughts is to ask about it. Got to work it up. Yeah. Got to work it up. Get as many details as possible because... You're absolutely right. I mean, that helps them process their thinking and feeling and um, and it certainly informs you, you know, in terms of their, their risks, yeah. you know, because that's what you're trying to figure out. There was this concern years ago where people thought talking about it would increase actual suicide. Oh, no. Because yeah. it's triggering, but no, that they found out that that, that that is not true. So getting as much information is, is part of our job. And right away, if you, are, if you know someone that's contemplating suicide or is confided in you, urge them to seek help. I tell you what, man, suicidal ideation is something we see so frequently in in mental health because it's a feature of many of the illnesses that we treat, you know, ranging from depression to bipolar Mm -hmm. disorder. I think, yeah, mood disorders, including depression or bipolar, are the number one, they account for 50% of suicide completions. And then, you know, certain personality disorders like you know, borderline. We see it often in borderline yeah. ideation. Yeah. And we see it with schizophrenia where they have a 5 to 6% risk of suicide. And substance abuse is huge. Oh, yeah. With regards oh, to suicide. Oh, very much so. Yeah, absolutely. The addiction, addiction, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of emptiness. Yeah. And people who complete 
suicide, uh, 50% of those individuals, they find some sort of substance, whether it's alcohol, marijuana, amphetamines in their system. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes alcohol. Yeah, because, you know, alcohol is a, a way of just kind of numbing you, you know. And there's also something else I want to bring up, too, and you alluded to it, um, that is related to suicide. Um, we'll touch on it now is non-suicidal self-injury or self-injurious behaviors. So yeah, individuals talk about that. who are purposely hurting themselves without any intention of killing themselves. Uh, I see that quite frequently working with adolescents. Cutting is something we frequently see as a means of relieving emotional pain, mm-hmm. cathartic a, process a for a lot of individuals, yeah. a negative coping mechanism. So we see that often bit, but there's no intention there oftentimes of killing themselves. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a lower risk proposition than that like conventional ideation mm-hmm. that we were describing. It's important to make the distinction because oftentimes we'll get parents or get individuals that'll ask me. It's like they want to cut themselves. They have a plan to cut themselves. Should they be in the hospital? Should they be hospitalized? And I oftentimes talk a, a lot about how, although that is dangerous, and you have to observe that, and you have to lock up the sharps and all the household cleaners or anything, and anything they may find to hurt themselves they they're not having thoughts to actually kill themselves so right. it's better to keep them out of the hospital because different out, it, it's being different. in the being in a psychiatric hospital is mostly just to keep someone safe from killing yeah. themselves and honestly to hospitalize someone for that for for, the, for releasing that pain is almost like shaming you know it, it's 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 not it's defeating it's not i i don't think it's goal-oriented i don't think it's goal-oriented i don't, I don't think it's it's really going to to help the problem yeah. Definitely. So there's a lot of things to differentiate when it comes to suicide, like you mentioned before. It's more than just that end result of death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's sometimes often a trail leading yeah. to that end point. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes it's an impulsive decision that maybe an individual's never thought about before. It's not universal. It'll be different from one person to the next. But we do have some risk factors that we can talk about today that can... Yeah. Yeah, risk factors. Um, God, it sounds like such a medical jargon term. Risk factors is a trail, right? So it's about detecting the clues, right, yeah. and finding that that pathway. You know, like this is a pathway. You know, it's a pathway that leads to death, right? So we want to try to intervene before you know it gets too far gone. Yeah, and unfortunately, since it's not a universal pathway like maybe heart disease is we don't know oftentimes when to intervene but we'll try to well the the sooner the better yeah we'll try to (laughs) yeah you know what um, i mean help provide a little clarity today just throw out some more statistics i mentioned before almost fifty thousand individuals in the u.s killed themselves in 2018 there's an estimated 1.4 million suicide attempts in 2018 wow and so that's huge because the strongest risk factor, right, the strongest predictor for completed suicide is having attempted suicide before. So some of those men and women are on their way, mm-hmm. sadly. Yeah, so that's those are individuals that we've got to pay a little bit more attention to. Absolutely, man. And, and look, there are signs so when we're doing a diagnostic formulation, you know, in a clinical setting as psychiatrists, right, and we're sizing people up, a lot of what we do in our analysis is risk profiling, right? We want to know to what extent you may 
harm yourself, right? We went into what extent you may harm someone else. Every visit is a suicide safety assessment. Absolutely. Because, you know, that we, for us, that is the worst possible outcome, you know, and so we, we have to do all we can to prevent that. So we're always going to ask certain questions. Because um, anybody that comes into our door, they're already at increased risk for suicide because mm-hmm. they're coming to us for some sort of mental illness. Yeah, exactly. They're seeking help. They desire, you know, some level of intervention. But there are certainly certain things that a client or patient may say in the course of, of this, this examination that you, you really want to pay attention to, okay? And these are like these, these red flags, right? These, these warning signs. So, well, um, the, and this is going to translate to individuals that aren't psychiatrists and are having a conversation with someone. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, hope, I, hope, I hope so. Yeah. Um, hopelessness, Right. When the conversation, the tone, uh, the types of things, you know, rarely people are going to say, hey, I'm, I'm hopeless, right? Just in the narrative, you sort of have to extract that. You know, you sort of have to understand, like, you need to assess, okay, well, what do you have to live for, mm-hmm. right? Like, if, there's, if somebody starts talking like they have nothing to live for. Yeah, they're right? very dismissive of the future. Right. Very negative about the future, about it even coming if someone's not future oriented that's a red flag you know that's something you really want to take a look at and again if you're seeing them in public you know or at at home or wherever like you want to take them aside and say look man maybe we should you know get you some help there's this other thing we talk a lot about in psychiatry circles i don't you probably won't hear it outside of uh of, of our circles is this this notion of uh anhedonia which is just this fancy word for lack of pleasure, lack of interest in things once pleasurable. And why that's important is because, you know, one of the things we get really good at as psychiatrists is establishing a baseline. So we try to really get to know our clients and really get to know what they're into, right? What makes them tick, what gives them pleasure? Because when those things, when they lose interest in those things, then we got a problem. Yeah, I think you're speaking to ultimately, in general, if someone has randomly a change in behavior, maybe they they find that they're not interested in playing basketball anymore, Uh-oh. or yeah. they have a, a change in like reactivity. They seem more irritable or more aggressive or more isolated. Anything, yeah. any brief change in behavior that should pique your interest, and you should either guide them to someone that they can talk to or try to talk to them. Mm-hmm. These are all things to be cognizant of before we jump into more risk factors just kind of the the makeup of individuals who kill themselves white males account for nearly 70 percent of suicide deaths the ethnicity with the highest rates of suicide are actually native americans yeah alcoholism has a lot to do with that yeah so that's something we're also cognizant of um, with regards to individuals from those backgrounds and then what's another thing that's important is Females actually attempt suicide more often than males, uh, up to two times more often than males. But men complete suicide three times more than females. Wow. We t- I think we touched on this before, but it's it's basically due to the means at which they attempt to kill themselves. And males, yeah, on average, it's always use, more lethal with guys. Use more lethal means, which for the most part is firearms, followed by suffocating or hanging and and women are more likely to take pills poison themselves Mm -hmm. yeah which 
we do a pretty good job nowadays of treating overdose, you know, we can, if we can get to them, you know, fast enough. Yeah, and unfortunately in the United States, firearms actually account for over 50% of all suicides, followed by suffocation at 30% and then poisoning at 7%. Compared to the rest of the world, actually poisoning is the number one method for completing suicide if you incorporate developing countries where ingesting pesticides is the number one method for completing mm-hmm. suicide. Yeah, man. Um, and and so it's not only a U.S. problem. It's worldwide. It's global. Yeah, it is a global problem. South Korea has some of the highest rates, two times higher than the rates of the, in the United States. And I understand that, you know, I'm not sure if this is still a thing, but in Japan, at least at one time in their history, it was sort of honorable uh, or it, it was sort of a cultural phenomenon that you would end your life if you dishonored your family. And there's like apparently this forest or this certain place yeah. in the woods that people go to, to actually like take their own life. Yeah, so it's a, it's a global um, issue. And it's unfortunately rising across almost every age group. The only age group that the rates of suicide aren't rising in are elderly, 65 and older, which happens to be the age group that has the highest rates of suicide completion, 65 and older. But that stayed steady over the last few years. Anyone younger than 65, it's gone up for children, adolescents, young adults, uh, middle-aged adults. It's doubled, actually, over the last 40 years and gone up 10% over the last year. So it's a growing concern. And me being a child and adolescent psychiatrist, it's a growing concern for us. So more and more adolescents, more and more high school kids and, and younger are committing suicide. And it's extremely devastating. So what we mentioned before... Previous suicide attempt is a risk factor. Any type of mental illness is a risk factor, but especially mood disorders like depression and bipolar, schizophrenia, substance use. Those are things to look out for. Individuals from Native American backgrounds are at increased risk. Family history of suicide is huge. There's been adoption studies that have shown a possible genetic link Um, individuals who are siblings at birth adopted as separate families and they've shown that despite the families both those individuals have ended up killing themselves so it points to more of a a nature and a genetic link than otherwise and they've kind of postulated do these individuals just have lower serotonin levels which is a neurochemical in our bodies responsible for mood and anxiety control, they've actually shown that there's a decrease in a molecule called 5-HIAA and then our spinal fluid. And a decrease in that is associated with suicide. So we're going to have more and more information with regards to this possible genetic link to suicide in the future as our science becomes more sophisticated. And like we touched on before, uh, substance use up to almost 50% of those that complete suicide are found to have substances in their system on autopsy. So, yeah, I mean, the substance use, the recreational drug use will do is it sort of gives the fuel to the fire. Yeah, I think a lot of times we stress, especially with adolescents, um, suicide can oftentimes be an impulsive decision. So access to means is a risk factor because if an individual has a suicidal thought and they don't have easy access to a gun or to household cleaners or to pill bottles, then it gives them time to actually think about it 
and use their frontal lobe and their rational thinking to rationalize themselves out of the attempt versus sometimes these suicide attempts are driven out of impulse, emotion. And if you have a gun on the coffee table or you have a pill bottle right in front of you during this moment of of intense emotional stress, you're more likely to go ahead and do it versus if a gun is in a lockbox or you don't even have a gun, then you don't have the means. So when relating this back to alcohol use or substance use, substance diminishes your judgment and your impulse control diminishes that frontal lobe. So you're more impulsive. So it makes sense that it would increase your risk of suicide. Yeah, I know for sure. Um, And access is is like really kind of the, uh, I think the important word there. It's something that we have to be very, very concerned about, right, is access. Um, So you you lock up your guns if you have children in the home. Now, when you talk about like, I guess, medical states or medical conditions that we get really concerned about, you know, just in terms of the degree of suffering that the the patient is likely to be experiencing. Think about like, you know, really severe chronic unrelenting pain, you know, syndromes. Those are folks that we worry, you know, may may go down that path. And you think about like the person that's just like, and we touched on this earlier, like just hopeless, right? Like they have nothing to live for. You'll, you'll hear terms like emptiness being used, um, worthlessness, mm-hmm. right? They just have no value. They Guilty. Feel like they're no use I can't to move anyone. forward in life. Yeah. I mean, those kinds of things, um, you know, extreme loss, like loneliness, you know, when you just feel isolated from others, like you're not connected, you know, to the world around you. Those are, are really significant pathological states that, that we, we really uh, we start to perk up yeah. when we see these. You know? So I think along these same lines, and we've, we've talked about this in a few other episodes too, this notion of identity, right? This notion of that kind of those foundational pillars of how we view ourselves, right? How we view ourselves compared to the world around us, right? And how we relate to the world around us. This principle of identity is the foundation upon which our really sense of well-being grows. And it's really important that that's intact. And, you know, Tori eloquently talks about this holding environment and how key that is, you know, to shoring up one's identity through development, right? So, you can ultimately presume how when you have an identity crisis occur early in life, right? How, how much that can kind of disrupt the structural foundation, uh, you know, of how one views themselves in adulthood and, you know, how they connect and relate to the world around them. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because, and it's all about how that person feels. You could seemingly see an individual and they have, they seem like they have a loving family, very supportive friend system and group, but it's about how they feel. Do they feel connected to these individuals? Do they feel supported? And if they do feel that, they're more likely to be able to rely on that, have that strong kind of foundation, that strong identity. And that would be protective against suicide. And something that actually, I guess, to shine a little bright light here is individuals who are not 
in the majority with regards to sexual identity are increased risk for suicide. So individuals in the LGBTQ plus arena are at increased risk. But the good thing is since 2000, due to public health interventions and due to just overall more acceptance of these individuals, you can go to any high school now and they have LGBTQ plus groups, support groups. Due to these interventions starting in 2000, the rates have dropped, which is great. And that kind of points to what we're going to be talking later. How can we prevent this? How can we Im- mm-hmm. improve upon this? Yeah, for sure. So conversely, being adopted elevates your risk for completed suicide times four. Wow. So that's one of, yeah, that's one of the most significant risk factors is adoption. And there's a lot of different things factoring into that. Obviously, individuals who are put up for adoption, they may be coming from backgrounds from individuals who have struggled with mental illness, so there might be a genetic link there. What you touched on just previously, that identity aspect. Oftentimes what we see is individuals who are adopted into family structures, no matter how welcoming and comforting in that holding environment they provide for them, some individuals feel like an outsider. Yeah, yeah, or just like there's something just missing you know, they're not, they don't feel as connected or oftentimes I've heard individuals talk about how, why didn't my parents want me? Mm. Yeah. Now I've also noticed plenty of individuals who've been adopted and and are kicking ass, but it's something to consider. No, it's a risk factor. You know, it it just, it's exactly, it's a consideration. And along these same lines is physical and sexual abuse, right? And I, and I think that physical and sexual abuse, you know, that trauma, you know, we've mm-hmm. talked about this. Aces. Trauma. Trauma can definitely change the trajectory of things, right? Because, you know, it's, it's that shock of that moment, you know, and that inability to really, you know, confront, you know, that, that reality, you know, just having to absorb, you know, that really negative energy, um, yeah, and often, it leaves a scar. Oftentimes the person that is abusing you is someone in your family or in your home. So you don't have that, that safe holding environment to develop hope for the future. Yeah, and, and people who have been in, in these situations, they often talk about you know, just losing self-esteem and just losing a sense of you know, who they are, right? Mm-hmm. their identity. Yeah, and along those lines, being exposed to violence, whether it's domestic violence or violence in your neighborhood, that's a that's a risk factor for suicide. And what about the suicide contagion? So yeah, we this is something that I don't know if you've ever picked up on, but whenever there is a, and this can be nationwide when there's a popular figure that commits suicide, suicide rates go up. And this happens also in in, in schools or in in cities when something as traumatic is, and you can think of this as almost related to exposure to violence when. You hear about someone either you care about or someone you're somehow connected to, someone you watch on TV, someone you listen to on the radio, or someone in your community killing themselves. That's a tragedy. So for certain individuals, it leads to, and maybe it's it's someone who has already had suicidal thoughts and they're like, well, if this person can do it, I can do it. Mm-hmm. But there's such thing as suicide contagion. Mm-hmm. So you have to be aware, and we talk to our, and this is another risk factor, if you know an individual 
that's struggling and they have a friend or they know someone who's killed themselves, then they're more likely to do it themselves as well. Yeah. What was the, the most shocking suicide that you can recall in your lifetime? Oh, wow. You want me to ask you that question? Cause I feel like you have one. Yeah. For me, I, I, I honestly think it was Kurt Cobain. Like just cause that time of my life, and, you know, it was a kind of a coming of age time for me. And Kurt Cobain was, you know, he was like a coming of age rock star. He, he was like, he was it at that time. You know, he was like leading this movement, you know, that would eventually become, you know, the grunge rock alternative movement. And and uh, certainly had not, you know, reached his pinnacle, but he was just oh, wow. entering his prime. Yeah. I think for me, it goes back to the athletes um, and Junior Seau, mm. someone like that. Oh, yeah, so definitely. Probably the most famous athlete that's completed suicide. And oftentimes with regards to athletes, it often happens after the playing career. Rare, suicides rarely happen with athletes in the, in the kind of thralls of their playing career. It's oftentimes after retirement. And that speaks to what you were talking about, identity, and we'll get into that. But, but Junior Seau, over 10 Pro Bowls, all pro over 10 times, NFL defensive MVP, NFL mm-hmm. man of the year, Chargers legend, hometown hero from Oceanside, went to USC, went to, drafted by the Chargers, number five overall. Pate played for the Bill Belichick and the Patriots a couple years. Mm-hmm. He was a... Uh, Championship the, DNA. Yeah, one of the faces of the NFL. Just over two years after he retired, he committed suicide by shooting himself in the chest. Was there uh, an autopsy done there? Yeah, so... And we, we speak down before about how substances sometimes are in the, 50% of the time in the system for mm-hmm, him. Mm-hmm. No alcohol, no drugs. Wow. He had Ambien in his system. Traces of Ambien, but he had been on that for sleep. So okay. just traces. So he probably just used it the night before to help with sleep. Don't know the specific details. But yeah, they did an autopsy. They um, speculated that he shot his, himself in the chest for a reason. There was a former NFL player, Dave Durson, shot himself in the chest back in 2011, and he left a letter saying he wanted to donate his brain to examine for possible CTE, and, and people speculate that Junior Seau shot himself in the chest in order to allow that, and they did do an autopsy, and guess what they found? They found chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE. Who would have thought? So I w- let me digress quickly into this topic. CTE, buzzword, people want to tie it to all these struggles that NFL athletes, boxers have after retirement, slurred speech, psychiatric symptoms, aggression, suicidal thoughts, homicidal thoughts. It's not a direct causal link. We don't have that yet. We do know that concussions and CTE can disrupt your judgment and your impulse control, decision-making, which can lead to these behaviors, but you cannot discount the psychological effect of retirement and losing that identity. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's several different factors. You know, it's not, there's just not one driver we talked about this ad nauseum in Athlete and Identity uh, podcast, in the Athlete and Identity episode. These individuals are different than Armin and I, who are psychiatrists. People who are athletes, they, a lot of them identify as an athlete. They've been playing this sport since they're four years old. Armin and I haven't been practicing psychiatry since we were four. We haven't been getting high fives from everybody and cheered on our whole lives playing this sport. A lot of these athletes yeah. identify, for better or for worse, as an athlete. And when that's gone, when that's taken away from you, we mentioned that a lot of times these athletes' careers end prematurely. No one really goes out on top unless you're John Elway. 
Even Peyton Manning wanted to come back and play, but no one wanted to sign him because he had a noodle arm. A lot of these guys, their, their careers end abruptly, and who are they after that? They question themselves. Ronda Rousey. That, that, that wasn't how, how Tom Brady went out. He's still going. He's still kicking. <laughs> so, he might get the biggest contract of his life gosh. in year 42. Yeah. Jesus. Ronda Rousey, she, on top of the world, she brought women's UFC to the forefront, women's mixed martial arts to the forefront, bolstered the UFC. She was a star before Conor McGregor. She lost a title fight against Holly Holm in 2015. An amazing fight. Yeah. And we before that, we just saw her dominate people. Armbar, ground and pound, beat the dog out of girls. It was exciting. So she faced this huge loss. And she was open and honest. She went on the Ella DeGeneres show and mentioned, she said, quote, unquote, honestly, my thought I was in the corner and I was like, what am I anymore if I'm not this? I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself in that exact second. I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? No one gives a shit about me anymore without this. So those were her thoughts immediately after that. Obviously, she I'm like got, suicidal ideation to me. Yeah, obviously she got knocked out. But th- this is someone who's on top of the world, and all of a sudden she's questioning everything. And this isn't uncommon with these athletes, these superstar athletes. And it's not just their identity; their finances are tied in this. How they make a living, how they care for their family, how they put food on the table. But you know, at the same time, like you also. Yeah, and I think this is a point you were trying to make earlier. Like, you don't want to overreact either, because in in a in a way, it's like okay, you have these thoughts, and if you're willing to share them, right, and be open about it, and kind of you know just get that off your chest, get that release. That's a better. That's better than you know when you you hold it inside. Yeah, and I want to praise her on opening up about that and articulating. Yeah her insecurities in that moment is what led to those thoughts. She didn't just say, oh, I was suicidal and didn't provide any more details. She gave you the reason why she was having those types of thoughts. And that's what you always want to try to get at. Definitely. Like what is underneath that? What is underneath that suicidal ideation? Yeah, I lift the veil. What's the reason? And it's, it's difficult. It's a difficult thing to do. So risk factors, you want to talk about risk factors specific to athletes? Oh, yeah. We mentioned retirement. We mentioned this identity thing, and it gets questioned whenever you have to retire. Whenever you face an injury and you have to sit out, you're no longer playing the game. We, we talked about ACL depression syndrome. Having an ACL injury increases your risk of depression, which if you have depression, that increases your risk of suicide. So these are always things to consider. And then failure, or com- competitive losses. We talked about this in the adjustment disorder episode and what Ronda Rousey was going through. That's right. Uh, many people have talked about how they've contemplated suicide after a failure or a loss. And it's kind of reactionary. Like we said, it's impulsive. But when people feel at their lowest, these thoughts can come up. They can, man. And like, think about it too, man. We're in this age of social media, right? And, you know, <laughs> man, you take a, a major L you know, especially when you're on a, on a big stage, you know you're going to catch it on oh, social yeah. media. Exactly. Like, there's no objective wins or losses that Arm and I face in our profession. And even if there were, it's not like we're famous. We're going to go home and get on our Twitter pages or Instagram and read tweets from people saying, maybe some tweets might say, you should kill yourself. I'm sure there's death threats. There's negative things that are oh, constantly yeah. thrown out there on social media. And don't get me started on social media because when the rates of, adolescent suicide and depression have started going up around the same time that 
smartphones became mm. in every high school kid's hand. Who would have thought? Talk about being disconnected, not feeling it like you have somewhere to belong. Yeah, no, it, it's uh, it has a big, big impact. Social media, you know, and it's it's the fans. I mean, these are fans. These are people that you are, are as an athlete, you're working for, right? You're you're you do the blood, sweat, and tears is for the fans. It's basically for your teammates in a team sport and the fans, you know. And if you love your coaching staff, you you know you, you know maybe the leadership, the coaching staff. But I mean. You know, it's like to have your to have your fans like just sort of turn against you. You know, God, that's got to be really tough. Yeah, and if you've your objective your whole life is to be a champion or, or to be a professional athlete, it doesn't come true, and you put all your blood, sweat, and tears in that. That will make you question yourself, and that could lead to hopelessness, and that could lead to emptiness, like you mentioned before, and uh, and maybe it's a vicious cycle. Yeah, maybe it's not going to lead directly to suicidal thoughts, but maybe it'll lead to substance abuse, and then you'll develop a adjustment disorder, and then depression, and then your risk factors continue to increase. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly right. So your risk factors, as they increase, so does the likelihood right, that you will attempt and complete or complete yeah. suicide. And athletes are at increased risk because they're at risk for concussion, and having a concussion. And some studies that have shown increases your risk of suicide by two times, which is high. Um, any anabolic steroid use increases your risk for suicide and violence. It makes you more impulsive and aggressive, so it makes sense. And all your run-of-the-mill things that an average person has, drug and alcohol abuse, mood disorders, any past history of sexual abuse or trauma. Uh, we talked once about WNBA athlete Imani Boyette, who attempted suicide twice and is now playing professional basketball for the Chicago sky. She's been open about the trauma she faced as a child, Mm -hmm. the abuse she faced. So she's leading the forefront in the WNBA bringing awareness to suicide. So this is, this is a more, more common thing than you think. And athletes, although in some arenas are more protected because they have kind of built in social support and something to focus all their energies on, and a lot of other, if you look at the other side of the coin, they're at, they're under a lot of stress, risk for injury. Being identified as an athlete is a risk amongst itself when that goes away. So partly they're protected, but partly they're also at risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, man. And I think one other way we can tie all this into previous subject matter is this, you know, we talked about momentum and when we talked about momentum in episode 25, uh, of course, we were mostly referring to the positive spin, right? And, you know, how momentum can be generated to propel you forward, you know, to achieving a goal, um, either individually or collectively as a team, and how the preparation and how, you know, that sort of laser focus you, you achieve through mindfulness, right? how that can all kind of come together to get you to that flow state. Well, momentum can be positive, but momentum can also be negative, right? And, you know, just like you see scoring runs, you see scoring droughts, right? And this kind of same principle can play out in someone's lives, right? They say when it rains, it pours. And, you know, there's some truth to that because, you know, I, I think oftentimes what happens is that when we have losses, talk about competitive failures, right? 
it can become a vicious cycle because, you know, for some of us, we seek to punish ourselves for having, for having lost, you know, for having not measured up, for having not met expectations, right? And so what happens is, you know, we're essentially playing out this sort of negative reinforcement cycle, right? Where we seek to punish ourselves as the, the consequence, right, for that failure, um, you begin to identify as a failure, and it all, it becomes almost a self fulfilling prophecy. Exactly, self fulfilling prophecy, right? And you start overeating, right? You don't, you know, you're not going, you're not, you're not taking care of yourself. You're not going to the to the gym. I'm a loser. I'm not gonna. I'm a loser. I'm not gonna make it. So why should I try anymore? Yeah, exactly. A little seed starts starts there, and it's a, it gives you a negative filter. We've talked a lot about having that, giving yourself a placebo, having that positive mindset and that positive filter. Um, but yeah, losing momentum causes you a negative filter. You're more likely to overemphasize negative things, and then you identify with that, and it, you spiral down. Yeah. And speaking of which, momentum. I want to talk about Michael Phelps because he's been open about how, after every Olympics and best Olympian of all time, maybe best athlete of all time, after every Olympics he would go into a deep depression, and he mentioned that he would contemplate suicide after hmm. certain Olympic games. Can you believe that? And he was a champion. He was winning. How many gold medals has he had? And even despite that, despite the success reaching his goals, coming down from that high resulted in depression, and he questioned killing himself. So maybe in the end, it's not all about winning, you know? Yeah. Maybe it's something more to it. Maybe it's, it's about filling that empty space, you know, whether that's with love, support, you know, feeling like, you're connected, feeling like your work and what you're doing is, you know, means something, you know, it, it's dedicated to something greater than just yourself. Yeah. Where does that fire come from to win a championship, to succeed? Why, why do you want to be a champion? Are you trying to fill some void that you're never going to fill with winning a championship? Because what does that really mean at the end of the day? Yeah, and that's why gratitude is so important to maintain, you know, as an athlete and, you know, as just a regular person like you and me, you know, just something that you really want to, to attach yourself to. Because when the going gets tough, the tough get going, right? And, and that toughness is resilience, and resilience cannot happen without gratitude. Yeah, there won't be a podcast goes by that we don't talk about resilience, mindfulness, gratitude that builds that confidence to keep going. Boom, the, you're a champion. Is the key to wellness. It really is the key to wellness. And... Wellness is almost sort of like the polar opposite state of being from the state of being in which you would be ready to end your life. And that would be our ultimate goal for individuals who have suicidal thoughts to get them back to that point. Because for the most part, everyone was at a point in their life where they didn't want to kill themselves. No doubt. (laughs) We want to get them back to a point of wellness. So overall, what are the things to be aware of? Hmm. So for me, it would be, If you hear anyone mention death or suicide specifically, ask more about it. If anyone mentions being hopeless or something that sounds like they have no hope for the future, ask them about it. Talk a little bit more. Those are red flags. Any change in behavior like we mentioned before and any quick mood changes. T, I'm so so glad you said that, man, because we need to to emphasize this point. Talk. People 
are, you know, now, especially nowadays with these phones, you know, it's like, man, people just don't want to talk to each other. But they, you, you, I don't think people really truly understand the power, right, of just sitting down with someone and just having a conversation, right? Just, you know. Hearing them out. Yeah, just letting them know that you care enough. Yeah, and I think it's important to know because I've also talked with individuals who have told me that sometimes, well, or, or even a parent sometimes that'll be like, well, they always, th- I, I send them to the room or I try to discipline them and they always threaten to kill themselves. They always say, I want to die. And people get frustrated and, and express that they believe the certain individuals is saying that to get attention or saying that to be manipulative. Mm. And I think... You, you know what that reminds me of? Mm-hmm. That nursery rhyme? Remember the boy that cried wolf? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that certainly can be the case in some situations because suicide carries so much emotional meaning that individuals sometimes don't have the words to articulate how they're feeling in that moment or maybe their emotions are so strong they have a hard time handling those emotions. So the best way for them to communicate how they're feeling to another individual is to say, I'm suicidal because everyone knows what that means. That word carries universal weight. Yeah, it does. It's powerful. It's Mm -hmm. like, man, I'm, I'm I'm at the end of my rope. But that could be extremely frustrating because individuals will use it oftentimes when they're not actually having suicidal thoughts. And we as psychiatrists talk to someone, we try to tease that out. But if you're just sitting there and you hear someone say it, at the end of the day, that person is trying to communicate something to you. Yeah, It may not actually mean that they have plans to kill themselves or they want to kill themselves, but it is a sign that they're struggling or something is going on or they just want to be heard. So hear them out. So, so he, Exactly. So overall, what you're saying, that's how you intervene at the personal level, mm-hmm. the individual yeah. level. As the mental health community, we have adolescent psychiatric emergency departments. We have adult psychiatric emergency departments. We have inpatient units. That's where we're addressing it. Um, within the general medical community, we try to have practitioners screen for depression, mm-hmm. screen for suicide. You know, it's funny. I, I just want to touch on that for mm-hmm. a minute. I, I often hear people referring to the hospital you know, in this way, it's very disparaging way as if it's like this scary, dangerous place, you know, that I would, I would never want my, you know, loved one to be in a mm-hmm. place, a place like that, you know, <laughs> and you hear these things and it's like, I don't think they understand, man, this is sometimes the only possible solution, right? In a real crisis, in a real mental health crisis, containment is sometimes the only reasonable strategy. And you'll be amazed at how, you know, even if they're not being treated with any particular medicine, how much better people get just by taking them out of that environment they were in that was provoking their symptoms, that was, you know, causing that depression, you know, fueling, you know, that that mania or whatever that kind of suicidal driver was. Yeah. Oftentimes in the adolescent psyche, we'll get kids that come in with suicidal thoughts and maybe they come from a rough background or they're getting bullied at school and all right, you can spend the night in the hospital. We'll talk in the morning and if they're feeling better and oftentimes they are, we discharge them back home. Sometimes they just need that break. Like you said, they need to hit that reset button. Exactly. And ultimately being in the hospital is only helpful to keep you safe and to give you that step away. Because ultimately, you have to go back into that environment. Yeah. So, so the bulk of work on trying to help someone who has suicidal thoughts is done on the outpatient basis. Yeah. I mean, it's like a decompression chamber. Yeah. 
How about that? Yeah. All right. And, and when someone's impatient, what we do and what we're trying to preach everyone to do is you try to shift their mindset, focus on the positive, focus on their strengths, really em- emphasize whatever family support they have, social support they have, really try to solidify that environment, that holding environment they have. That's so important. And then you give them access to care is huge, having someone to talk to. So identify family members they can talk to, identify a therapist they can talk to, identify a psychiatrist they can talk to. Man, it's like, yeah, just the power of knowing that people care, you know, it's sometimes that's, just, that's what makes the difference. Absolutely, because a lot of times it is a cry for help. And one of the main things is teaching coping skills and, mm. and distress tolerance. Yeah, dialectical behavior therapy. We've touched on before, you know, a great treatment for borderline personality disorder and, you know, bipolar disorders. And, and anyone struggling with really high, strong emotions that they can't handle. Yeah, and, you know, and difficulty with, yeah, managing distress, mm-hmm. right? Coping skills are essentially strategies um, that can just got kind of go to, you know, just like tools, the toolkit you can pull out of your your pocket and just kind of like in the moment, be yeah. mindful. Yeah, absolutely. And we apply work, gratitude. We emphasize when you start to have negative thoughts and sometimes when you start to have suicidal thoughts, go to your coping skills, go to the things that you know will either distract you to allow those thoughts to go away or that give you a sense of real joy or, or that give you a sense of meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, purpose. Yeah, and, uh, you know, identity. So, man, we can go on and on there. What about the government? I think, first off, the government, which, you know, obviously is driven by taxpayers' dollars and funding, I think it should have a large stake in public health education, right? Educating people on suicide, right? Risk factors, um, warning signs, you know, all the things we talk about. Of mental health as a whole. Mental health as a whole. And ultimately, though, what I'd like to see is a stronger effort at not just destigmatization, right? And not just about like awareness of mental illness, but how about more of a promotion of wellness, right? And a promotion of how do we not just think about this thing as a concept of illness, but more as like, hey, like this is something we need to protect and preserve because we want to have the experience of, you know, feeling at our best in wellness. So it's definitely more of a prevention tactic because when you're talking wellness, someone who's well is also going to be more resilient and they're going to be able to handle stress better and they're less likely to develop a mental illness. And they're going to be able to perform at a high level. And and we're kind of already seeing this with these big private corporations and companies or any tech company or or Yelp, for instance, or health insurances. They'll pay you or they'll provide you with a gym membership Mm -hmm. so you can have better overall physical and mental health. Yeah, no, gym membership, health coaching, health coaching. Do they? Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. Insurances? As far as employee health. But then you you have companies like Yelp or Riot Games here in L.A. that, Free food, chef, a masseuse if you want it, yoga classes, a counselor, someone there at work that you can talk to. So the focus towards wellness is happening, at least in California, at least at some of these more 
I guess, I don't know if you want to call tech companies progressive, but some of these more progressive companies, certainly we don't get that in the healthcare field. (laughs) Physicians actually have one of the highest rates of suicide. Yeah, it's wild. Um, No, they feel like we should just, you know, know, know how to to take it but even (laughs) even in the past five years i've noticed like they're they're focusing you see a lot more lectures on burnout and how to prevent burnout and so we've seen that within our careers granted you can't work us 80 hours a week and then give us free free donuts and expect that to be wellness why don't you just cut back a couple hours yeah i mean when you're when you're at 80 hours a week man like you know, even working at 60 hours a week is, you know, it almost feels like a vacation, you know, because you're just, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I don't, it's it's funny. I don't know if I could ever honestly, truly work 40 hours a week at this stage of my life. Maybe when I get to be like, you know, my 50s, 60s, you know, like you know, much older, but man, yeah. I mean, they, they have you for many years. just like, yeah, it's like nothing's going to help prevent or treat burnout more than me being out of the hospital doing what I want to do with my free time. That's true. Yeah, it's so true. I should mention that, though, psychiatry, it's good work-life balance. We weren't necessarily, we we had some 80-hour work weeks, but we weren't pushing this, pushing that often compared to our surgeon counterparts no. or inter, internal medicine I remember I had it at Duke, though. Yeah, I was up there in that uh, second year in neurology. It was crazy. Yeah. Um, so... You want to touch on physician-assisted death or physician-assisted suicide? Yeah, no, it's a very controversial topic. Um, listen, as as doctors, we buy into certain ethics and certain principles. The probably largest of which is to to preserve life, right? Like we're we're the good guys, all right. Do we no harm. Do no harm. That's for, that's number one. Right, we actually do have like this like set of values, you know. But isn't one also the oath, justice, or autonomy? And and but they are in in order, okay. And you're right, justice is one of them. Autonomy is another, meaning that our patients make the cause, their decisions, their life, their body, and then of course beneficence, right? So we always it's always about goodwill. We're doing this always for the, the patient's best interest, always acting in the patient's best interest. But number one of these virtues is non-maleficence, which breaks out to mean do no harm. First, do no harm. So what happens when some of those contradict? What if an individual believes that it is in their best interest, someone who's sound of mind believes that it is in their best interest to die? Yeah, and, and, and that's why this, you know, has been debated, you know, in courts at the highest level um, and for decades now. It's like, you know, this, this even touches on uh, the fundamental question of, you know, what is life? You know, where does life begin? Where does it end? And, you know, who owns that entity that is life? And It's intense. Yeah. It is, but it, it's these are these are the questions, and um, I think uh, I've always. <laughs> what kind of questions are you asking yourself? Who owns life? I've always been a person who believed that in certainly the preservation of life, and when I think about you know a person, let's say in their sixties, you know who 
wants to end their life as a result of some sort of you know medical condition, my first thought is, no, like what can we do? Yeah. What can we do to preserve this? You know, like there's got to be a way. I mean, we can save premature, you know, preterm, you know, infants and you know, kind of nurse them back to health in these incubators, right? Like certainly, surely we, we have something for this person. And I think that's a good point. And what I would think is like, what is that life that you're preserving? What is that infant that was born at 23 weeks when they do recover? What does that recovery look like? Are they permanently disabled or do they have the opportunity to, to be fully functioning and have a life that, and ultimately it comes down to what they themselves and we would never know that, but have a fulfilling life. And for that older individual you're talking about, their life is is suffering mm-hmm. and miserable. That has to be factored in. That's where Absolutely. that autonomy piece comes into. It does. Play. No, it, it's it's the, yeah, it's autonomy, and you can almost like flip it to a beneficence, right? I mean, maybe. You know, it is in their best interest to to let them go to help to assist them in their death. Yeah, it's actually legal in ten states here in America: D.C., Hawaii, Maine, New Jersey, Oregon, Vermont, Washington, California, in Montana. So, in California, it actually came into law recently over the past two or three years. It's the California End of Life Option Act. So there's some requirements. So for all these states in the U.S., you have to have a diagnosable terminal illness diagnosed by two physicians, and your life expectancy has to be six months or less. So we're talking about stuff like, you know, stage four pancreatic cancer. Uh, We're talking about, like, really severe COPD, you know, when you require, you know, oxygen at rest, for example. Um... You know, we're talking about like really severe heart disease, well beyond triple bypass, um, you know, where you, you know, sort of become short of breath, even at rest, you have heart, you know, heart failure. You know, we're talking about some really miserable conditions. Um, we're talking about terminal illness. Yeah. So they have to be a resident of California, 18 years or older, deemed mentally competent, able to communicate, make the decisions on your own. And like I mentioned, you have to be diagnosed with the terminal illness. And then you have to be able to self-administer the drug. What you do is you actually have to make a verbal request to your doctor. And usually it's someone that you've been seeing and developed a relationship for a long time. And then the physician is required to offer all alternative treatment options. They'll consult with another physician. So you get two physicians' opinions on the situation. Make sure the person's mentally competent. And then the individual, the patient has to do another verbal request after 15 days. And then after that, they do a written request and then they get to wow. prescribe the medication to take home. And the medication is a barbiturate, cecobarbital sodium. And wow. essentially a barbiturate is like a benzo on steroids, sleeping medication. I like that analogy, high, actually. High dose sleeping medication. Or it's like an alcohol on meth. So you take it and you bring it home and you do it on your own time with your loved ones around you, if that's available to you. And you go in peace. You go in your sleep. And what exactly are you doing? How does the process play out? Usually you mix the medication in a liquid and you drink it before you go to bed. Talk about liquid courage. Yep. So that's what's going on in the United States. 
But euthanasia, usually that's kind of what they call it worldwide. And that's already legal in a lot of different countries like the Netherlands and Belgium. And they Netherlands actually says, this is where it gets a little bit more tricky, if, if you think it couldn't get more tricky, is that you don't have to have a terminal illness. Wow. They're requirements are quote-unquote unbearable with no prospect of improvement. So that could actually include some mental illness, right? Like like intractable depression, like that, you know. Chronic suicidality. Yeah. It does. So the Netherlands, actually, the data from 2018, had over 6,500 people participate in euthanasia. And out of those 6,500 people, 85 of them met the requirements due to psychiatric suffering. Wow. There so it is. In psychiatry, we don't have any quote-unquote terminal illnesses. Well, we have suicide, you know, and that's, uh, that's pretty terminal. But on the surface, the end result is suicide, mm-hmm. and physician-assisted suicide is the same thing, right? <sighs> I don't, know if it, I, I don't I, think it's the same thing. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. It takes, it takes chain of agency in you know a different direction in terms of you don't have to be wholly responsible for that act you're kind of extending the responsibility to the physician um yeah i, I, I see it's tough it's all about the process at the end of the day everyone dies so you could say a death is a death regardless of whether it's by suicide or it's very controversial i i you know illness. i don't i think every doctor should be able to make his or her own decision about where they stand on that. I'm, you know, yeah, squarely absolutely. in the camp of, you know, I can't I can't participate in that. It's just how I feel about the preservation of life. Although I I guess, you know, while I you know, have my own personal views on it, I do understand uh, suffering and, you know, if someone chooses to take their life uh, to end that suffering, then, you know, I, I have to respect that decision. When it comes to physician-assisted suicide, I think the ability to, if you believe that life, your life is suffering, and that's your only escape from it, and it's terminal, and that's why we have the terminalness requirement in the United States, and you have the option to to do it on your own terms, safely, with or without loved ones around you, and it's planned, then I think it's something that could benefit a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, I've actually seen these play out on a documentary. Um, and it seems like it benefits the family. Yeah. It's, it's a very different experience, obviously, than, you know, a lethal, unexpected kind of suicide. And like you said, you know, it's planned out. It's methodical. Um, it's, almost, it's ceremonial, right? I mean, you know, while it's happening, you know, as the ones I've seen at least, you know, all their loved loved ones are there at their home, at their side. You know, there's different things going on. It's almost like a celebration of life, you know, over the course of that day. You know, I think attempts are made so that it's not a somber event, but in fact, more like, hey, you know, like, yeah, like a reveal, like a reveal party or something. You know, it's just like, hey, you know, this is this is a, this is what this this is actually a great thing because it's going to end this person's yeah. suffering. They're in control. They're autonomous, and it's it's essentially an extension of what doctors al- already do throughout the entire country in all these hospitals. A patient has the ability to say DNR, DNI, do not resuscitate, yeah. do not intubate, uh, and oftentimes an individual in ICU goes into 
cardiac arrest, they're not breathing, their lungs aren't working, easy fix, intubate them or provide them oxygen. Some people say no, and I don't want that. Oh, man, you know, listen, you've you've heard of these historic cases like, you know, Nancy Cruzan is one that comes to mind. Terry Schiavo comes to mind. I must tell you, like, I admire those families uh, and their story and and their experience. And and I really actually, um, you know, I think very highly of their families for having that much love, you know, and that much fight and willpower, you know, for, for just wanting to stand by their loved one, you know, all those years. But it's, man, it's, it's, it's tough to see someone, you know, in such a different state, not able to really interact, not, you know. Yeah. These terminal illnesses destroy who they are. Yeah. Not really. Yeah. uh, Who they once were, you know, when, when you knew them at their best and uh, it's just sad for everybody. It's tough. Yeah, it's it's a tough decision, right? And each physician has their own ideas on it. Each individual has their own ideas, and it's it's ultimately, I believe, it should be up to the individual and their doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, and because that relationship is sacred, and you have to have checks and balances. And I and I do like that they make sure the person does not have some mental incapacitation. You know that they're in the right mind. There's not you know some undue influence. I mean, a person that's demented. You know, that's not appropriate. Yeah, a person who's intoxicated. Yeah, you, you want somebody that's making a, a clear decision, you know, an informed decision, and one that they truly believe in their heart is the best decision. Um, you know, w- one of the reasons why we wanted to do this podcast was because, you know, this is one of those really difficult subjects, you know, that people don't like to talk about. But, you know, we're here to tell you that, you know, sometimes talking about it is is really the best remedy, right? So, um, you know, let's just, uh, let's continue the conversation. And in the stigma. It can be to you.